you got problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah. you don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it you're a freak with a dark shameful secret but you're not the only one Teach your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun now your healing has begun it's bad with money with gabby dunn hello my name is gabby dunn and welcome to bad with money the show where I've revealed my tiny checking account balance, had an actual therapy session on the air, and asked embarrassingly basic questions about the American financial system. And after all that, I'm now about to do something that's probably going to seem trivial, but just hold on, you guys. I'm going to read to you my last five things that I ordered from Amazon. Yesterday, I ordered an easel from Amazon Prime for a sketch that we needed it immediately. Although I guess I could have just gone to an art store. I I ordered Nespresso pods for my Nespresso machine, which a very socially engaged person came to my house and told me that those were destroying the environment. So I still ordered them. A printer ink for my computer. Um, and uh, Venus razors. And... Magic sliders, door stops for my doors in my house. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I also, a long time ago, not a long time ago, a month ago, I ordered a book about homeschooling your children. I'm not married. I don't have children. <laughs> I have no, <laughs> I have no, no reason for this at all. What is wrong with me? So why is it terrible that I ordered these things from Amazon? Well, for starters, they were probably shipped to me from an Amazon fulfillment center, where, as I recently learned from author Jessica Bruder, some pretty fucked up things have been known to happen. I remember, oh, forgive me if the year's not exact, but around 2012, the scrappy, fantastic newspaper, the Allentown Morning Call, came out with a story, and it was this wild expose talking about how there was an Amazon warehouse and people... Uh, were overheating. And rather than opening the loading bay doors, because uh, they were afraid of theft, and rather than installing air conditioning, they basically had paramedics stationed outside with ambulances ready to kind of scrape them off the floor when they dropped and take them to the hospital. And what? yeah, that made my head explode. As you guys have probably noticed, we've been going after a lot of the key structural elements of the American economy this season on Bad With Money. That means that a lot of the time we're fundamentally talking about our role as consumers in that economy. And there's this one company that seems to come up pretty frequently in these conversations, which, duh, is Amazon. So this week, I want to see if I can understand Amazon's impact on our lives as consumers and how just as citizens a bit more deeply. And to do that, I've been talking about Amazon with a lot of writers and journalists like Jessica, who we'll hear more from in a bit. Throughout these conversations, which dove deep into the history of both Amazon and its founder, Jeff Bezos, I keep hearing phrases like monopoly on steroids, evil supervillain, robber baron. The more I learned, the more it started to feel like all those phrases aren't much of an exaggeration, which is a bit of a mindfuck because I'm willing to bet almost everyone listening to this has a list just like the one I read a moment ago. And if you don't, there's a good chance you went to a movie theater recently and discovered that the movie you were there to watch was produced by Amazon Studios. Or maybe you decided to stay home and stream something on Netflix. Well, guess what? Netflix hosts their files on Amazon Web Services. Maybe you went shopping at Whole Foods, which Amazon recently bought. Or read the Washington Post, which Jeff Bezos owns. Or looked at a web ad that was sold based on information Amazon collected from you based on stuff you bought. 
from Amazon. The fact is, guys, you're probably interacting with Amazon at this exact moment without even knowing it. And I don't know about you, but I find that terrifying. Fascinating, but mostly terrifying. That there's a single company that has so much control over what we buy, how we buy it, how the things we buy even get made in the first place. And for the most part, we just don't think about it that much. So this week, we're going to think about it hard. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So look, maybe you listened to the intro and you thought, geez, Gabby, cool it. We get it. Structural racism is bad. The pay gap is bad. The healthcare system is bad. Why are you going to go after Amazon? Can we please just have Amazon? Sorry, I made your voices like that. And also, I'm sorry, you can't. Or you can, but like, we really need to talk about what you're choosing to ignore when you use Amazon. And we're going to start with an overview from Stacey Mitchell, the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, who recently published a piece in The Nation called, Amazon doesn't just want to dominate the market, it wants to become the market. Naturally, as you might have guessed from the name of her organization, Stacey thinks Amazon's market dominance is a very bad thing, all caps. They really are looking to make buying from them an almost unconscious habit to the point that we don't even really notice how much or even think when we're buying from Amazon that we're making a decision or making a choice. But Amazon can use that uh, control of our attention and what it is that we see when we're on their, on their platform or what it is that Alexa offers us when we say we want to or- order diapers or batteries or whatever it may be, it can decide which brands pop up first, what it is that our t- attention is directed to. You know, it's no coincidence that quite a few of the titles on the Kindle bestseller list are Amazon published titles. Mm -hmm. Um, It's no coincidence that when you ask Alexa to send you batteries, you don't get a choice of Energizer or Duracell. Uh, You're automatically going to get Amazon brand batteries. Um, So we're moving towards this future where um, we imagine that we're operating in a competitive environment and an environment that has a veneer near of lots of choices and options, but where in reality, those options uh, have been winnowed down and focused in ways that um, meet Amazon's needs and not necessarily our own. So, okay, the book sales thing comes up again, because there's this story about how they lost $3 billion on book sales in the first six years as a publicly traded company, so that they could drive bookstores out of business and make themselves the only place customers can go for books. And they did that by like super cutting costs, essentially, like selling the books at a much lower cost. That's right. I mean, one of the tactics that Amazon has used since the very beginning when it was founded in 1995 is to sell entire categories of goods below cost, below its own cost. So actually Mm -hmm. losing money. It did that for years with books um, and lost billions of dollars. Uh, Investors were comfortable letting those losses pile up, um, partly because 
Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO, has a really uh, deft way of handling investors. He himself comes out of Wall Street. He's very skilled at setting their expectations, uh, but mainly because investors were really focused on Amazon's overall revenue growth and its market share. You know, they bid up the stock price based on the fact that Amazon is taking over a growing, a hugely growing part of the market. And the expectation is that at some point, Amazon will shift from racking up losses or barely making a profit to making monopoly level profits, that it will become incredibly lucrative uh, down the road through this strategy. You know, and in the case of books, they lost, you know, $3 billion in those early years selling books at a loss. Lots of bookstores closed in droves. Uh, publishers took a big hit. Authors saw their income and their advances go down. You know, everybody in the industry lost out and was squeezed to the side. Today, Amazon sells about half of all books, both print and digital. And in eBooks, they have over 70% of the market. Mm -hmm. So they really dominate. They've consistently used that strategy to uh, take over new segments of the market and also to block upstart competitors. So, you know, one example is when Zappos came along, you know, the shoe retailer, they came along in the mid 2000s and they got to be very popular um, very quickly. And Amazon went to them and said, we'd like to buy you. And the mm -hmm. folks at Zappos said no. Uh, so Amazon uh, you know, began to sell shoes at a loss and it lost an estimated $150 million shelling shoes at a loss. Zappos mm -hmm. in the market had to try to match those prices, but, you know, being a smaller company, they started bleeding red all over the place. And at some point they gave in and they sold to Amazon. So Zappos today is Amazon. Yeah. So how does uh, Alexa fit into the strategy of dominating the ecosystem. It was very interesting to read in the piece the the way that Alexa fits into everything. Yeah, you know, Alexa is the next iteration really of a of a strategy that started with Prime. And Prime is, you know, Amazon's annual membership program. Mm -hmm. It costs now about $120 a year. Um, and about half of all US households belong to Prime. Um, Prime is a really um, a, a kind of clever psychological trick. Um, you know, one of the benefits that you get from Prime is free shipping. And so, you know, the point of getting you to fork over that $120 for the annual membership fee um, has never really been about the money. It's that when you've paid that money, you then naturally want to maximize the value and free shipping that you get. And so what people have found is that uh, uh, people who are, who are prime members tend to not do a lot of comparison shopping. They start right on Amazon. They spend about twice as much per year as non-prime households, uh, spend on Amazon. And now Alexa takes this another step, you know, um, having this, um, voice speaker in our homes and wired into a growing number of appliances, including, uh, many new car models and other kinds of, uh, devices and appliances means that Amazon is constantly uh, integrated into our lives. Mm -hmm. It's an always listening device, which means that there's a lot of data that it can gather about us from the very intimacy of our homes. And it also means that the barrier to ordering from Amazon is d sort of non-existent at this point. You can place an Amazon order is like a sort of passing thought. Well, I think people, individual people are like weighing, okay, yeah, we know this is bad, but also like, it's so convenient. 
Like you're, exactly. you were talking about like the ways that, you know, like technology is like, well, it's efficiency and like they just are more efficient. Exactly. And it's, you know, I don't, I just think the idea that this problem is on us as consumers to solve doesn't make any sense to me, you know, for those reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think what we need is, uh, is our, our public policies that step in and say, okay, Amazon, you are going to be two different companies. Uh, we're going to remove that inherent conflict of interest. There's going to be Amazon, the company that makes and sells retail goods. And there's going to be Amazon, the platform, the online platform that other companies need to use in order to get to market. And when it comes to that platform, it's a common carrier, you know, like we did with telephone lines and other utilities, where we say it's in the public interest that the rules that govern that platform and govern the sellers that are on that platform treat everyone fairly, that they're reasonable, that the the utility itself doesn't use its bottleneck control in order to extract unreasonable profits or to discriminate against certain sellers over others. We need public interest rules to govern that platform. And that means we can all enjoy the benefits of that technology and the convenience of it um, while keeping a competitive market and while allowing all of the great small and mid-sized businesses out there not to just be steamrolled by this giant monopolist. So has this been like Amazon's plan all along, or is this an opportunity that Jeff Bezos has just gradually recognized and figured out how to take advantage of? I think that this has been their plan all along. I mean, it's hard to, of course, know what what actually was in Mm -hmm. his mind in founding the company. But, you know, he picked books as the initial product to sell, not because um, he had any particular love of books, but because Um, They were sort of a uniform product. There was a a database of all the books based on the ISBN numbers that every book has. So it sort of fit into this model of being the right product to try out. And he, you know, very clearly did this um, below cost selling in order to bring uh, uh, people onto the platform and, and grow the market share and eliminate competitors. So there's been this sort of steady set of steps that seems to suggest this really was a vision all along that you know it has evolved in some ways I'm sure but that this this was really a core uh, approach from the from the very beginning part of that has also been um, that Amazon you know, since its very founding has um, really relied heavily on uh, government favors and handouts mm-hmm. to fuel its growth I mean Amazon has picked up um, Uh, big subsidies for many of the warehouses that it's built. It's over half of its warehouses have received public subsidies, Mm -hmm. um, totaling about $1.2 billion to date. And of course, it's now engaged in this big bidding war for its second headquarters, uh, where some cities are putting up offers that, you know, range as high as, you know, $8.5 billion uh, in subsidies to Amazon. So, you know, when I look back at Amazon's history, I see a really systematic set of steps of a company that, um, you know, very strategically was going after this idea of uh, of being able to, to gain a kind of bottleneck control over the economy and to use uh, government favors and handouts uh, as a way to help fuel that growth, as well as um, these losses that investors were willing to accept uh, in exchange for uh, a rapidly rising stock price and also future monopoly profits. And why are elected officials, why are they trying to attract favor from Amazon? I think, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, 
our economy is is for ordinary people is is really struggling a lot. I mean, you know, we're in the middle of a vigorous recovery period. And yet a lot of people don't feel that way. You know, when we look at what's happened with incomes, um, which are for most people stagnant, um, we've seen really not very strong uh, job creation overall. And so I think there's a certain desperation on the part of cities to try to create jobs, to try to have economic um, growth and, and activity. Mm. But the, the the really disturbing irony of all of this is that Amazon is a central protagonist in this story of rising inequality and job loss and new businesses not being created. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. a root cause of a lot of those problems. And so by subsidizing it and, and fueling its growth, um, and allowing it to displace lots of other businesses, um, you know, it's only making matters worse. I think a lot of people have a hard time, and I certainly did, like wrapping their minds around the reasons that a single company dominating the entire economy is bad from a business standpoint, like, because they say, you know, oh, well, they must be the best at it. Um, but you write that it's even a bigger deal than that. It's it's a threat to liberty and democracy. Yeah, I mean, We've been conditioned um, since about the 1980s to think of ourselves as consumers, to think of our main role in not just in the economy, but just in general in our society as that of a consumer. Um, We're referred to that way by the media. We're referred to that way by elected officials and by companies. Um, Part of what that has done is it's made us forget that we're also people who need to earn a living, that we're also producers of value. And when you look at what Amazon is doing, the control that it is taking of one industry after another, and you look at those industries and you see manufacturers being squeezed and going out of business, you see Mm -hmm. competing retailers being squeezed and going out of business. You know, when you lose all of that, what it means is that there are fewer opportunities for us to make a decent living, that the ability uh, right now to go out and start your own business and be able to compete in an open market and a fair market has been dramatically diminished by Amazon's uh, exercise of its market power. And we're in fact seeing a sharp drop in the number of new businesses created. And it also, you know, it affects us as citizens because now you have a company like Amazon that's out there deciding you know, which communities are going to do well, you know, which communities are going to get a warehouse, Mm -hmm. which communities are going to have their economic uh, uh, foundation pulled out from under them because Amazon decides to really block and impede the businesses based in that community from competing. I mean, this is not, uh, you know, those are decisions that are inherently political. I mean, effectively, we have a kind of autocrat um, uh, that Mm -hmm. is beginning to make decisions that profoundly affect our lives and and affect the future of our communities, those decisions are no longer uh, dispersed across uh, all of us are are, are democratic. They're increasingly centralized in the hands of one company. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be as though Walmart came into your community and not only built a big store on the outskirts of town, but then bought up all the other commercial real estate and decided what businesses get to locate in which stores, who doesn't get a store at all, how much rent they have to pay, who gets a location that has decent traffic. I mean, and then, you know, proceeded to compete with those same businesses. Um, We wouldn't allow that in the physical world. And yet that's precisely what's happening online. I'm sorry to go all Carrie Bradshaw on you, but I have to say, listening to Stacey describe Amazon's market dominance as bad for democracy, I couldn't help thinking, really? How dominant are they really? So I looked it up and let me lay some numbers on you. 
In 2017, 89% of all holiday shopping was done via Amazon. 89%. Of all the books bought online, Amazon sells two-thirds of them. You can take everything sold online in 2016 by some other companies you may have heard of, Walmart, Target, Best Buy, Nordstrom, Home Depot, Macy's, Kohl's, Costco, add it up, and Amazon still sold six times as much. Speaking of Walmart, which is an evil behemoth in its own right that we could probably do a whole episode about, Morgan Stanley predicts that Amazon will surpass Walmart later this year as the number one clothing retailer in the country. And we've barely even talked about the moves Amazon is making in food delivery, news, entertainment. When there's one company that exerts this much influence over our lives as consumers, it's fair to start throwing around the M-word. Monopoly. In fact, some people think it's long past time we start using that word to describe Amazon. Lena Khan is the Director of Legal Policy at the Open Markets Institute, and she's written extensively on Amazon, including a particularly fascinating piece called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. So we have a set of antitrust laws. Uh, Most of them were passed in the late 1800s and the early 1900s against the backdrop of growing industrial revolution, um, the rise of the robber barons and the industrial trusts. So we'd had this, you know, fantastic technological revolution, but as a result, we'd also seen these new concentrations of power that led to, you know, the sugar trust, the steel trust, the oil trust. And so there was a growing backlash against this concentration of economic power because there was a recognition that it was threatening our markets, that it was bad for us as workers, bad for us as consumers, and bad for our democracy. And so Congress passed a set of antitrust laws that really sought to keep markets competitive and to ensure that no single private actor could amass so much power in a marketplace that they could effectively set the terms of the market. So that was how we did antitrust for the first 60, 70 years. Um, Starting in the 70s, there was this intellectual revolution um, spearheaded by the Chicago School, which was a bunch of economists and lawyers at the University of Chicago. And they said that, you know, the way we were doing antitrust was really wasteful. It was really causing a lot of inefficiencies and uncertainty for business. And they suggested that the only proper goal of antitrust should be to promote economic efficiency in the form of basically just producing as much as possible output maximization. And they termed this, ended up terming this consumer welfare, which for all practical purposes gets interpreted as are consumers paying low prices? And so that's kind of the dominant regime today where antitrust enforcers, when they're, say, reviewing a merger or trying to get a sense of whether particular conduct by a big company is harmful, the main question they look at is, have consumer prices gone up? And this is really interesting in the case of Amazon because Amazon has built its whole business strategy and rhetoric around reducing prices for consumers. And so it presents a case where a company has structurally a mass dominance in all of these markets, but because it's not using that dominance to raise prices for consumers, that's kind of disabled our antitrust laws. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a New York Times opinion piece last year, you wrote about Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods and that Amazon claimed it shouldn't raise antitrust flags because they only control 5% of the grocery market. Um, what do you think the acquisition is, is really about for them? Um, I think there are a few ways to look at it. One is that, you know, overnight, Amazon just acquired over, I think, over 400 brick-and-mortar stores, Mm -hmm. you know, in very prominent locations, um, accessible to a lot of its high-end customers. Um, So that, you know, I think having overnight establishing such a pervasive physical presence um, is valuable to Amazon because it can use it to showcase some of its own goods, such as its Echo devices and other private brand um, 
goods that Amazon is directly producing. I think it's also a way to bring more people into its Amazon Prime um, circle. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you go into a Whole Foods and you see that there are all these discounts, but those discounts are only available to Amazon Prime members, um, you might be more, you know, interested in joining Prime. So this leads to this stat from your op-ed where Amazon already controls the majority of online retail shopping and almost three quarters of all ebook sales. Um, yeah. Are there other markets Amazon dominates that we wouldn't even really expect? Um, cloud computing is huge. So mm-hmm. Amazon um, is the biggest uh, provider of cloud computing services. Um, it has more market share than its next two competitors combined. It's also very involved in providing government with computing services. And so, you know, a few years ago, it won this really big contract with the CIA. It's potentially on the cusp of winning another really big contract with the Pentagon. Um, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm on a government website and, and download, you know, a PDF from, from a government site, it, I've realized that it's actually being hosted on AWS, oh. which stands for Amazon Web Services. And cloud computing is just the ability to hold things in the cloud, essentially? Exactly. Yep. So that's the basic service that they provide. And they would make a contract with the Pentagon so that they would be basically hosting all of the Pentagon stuff on the Amazon cloud? Exactly. So they would be um, you know, the primary provider. <laughs> Whoa. And it's interesting because I don't know if you recall, but in the last few years, there have been a couple of instances where AWS has gone out. Um, you know, there's right. been some crash somewhere. And like a fraction of the Internet goes out when that happens, right? Netflix, a whole bunch of other sites um, stop working at, while AWS is out. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I think thinking about the resiliency and fragility concerns here, um, what happens when you become so dependent on a single network is something that I think society's only, you know, is barely coming to terms with, but that could change very quickly if we see kind of one big disaster going forward. Yeah, I feel like monopolies and antitrust stuff like made people make sense of it when you think about it in the past. But with today, I feel like people are just like, I don't want to be bothered. Yeah, and I think that's also because um, the way in which these companies are monopolistic is in some ways a little less obvious because mm-hmm. back then um, there was like literally one place that you could buy your sugar or get steel. Right. Whereas today, um, since many of the new monopolies are online services, there's a sense that, oh, but competition is just one click away. There's nothing really compelling you to buy from Amazon. You could just go to your local Walmart, your local Macy's or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, the, the way in which these companies now exert control and power is a little less obvious because there remains this kind of illusion of choice. I think the other major difference is that monopolies back then were abusing their power both against workers and suppliers, but also against consumers. Whereas I think the main issue with a lot of the online monopolies today is that the people that really feel their power and their grip is the suppliers and the producers and the workers that have to rely on these networks. It's not as much the consumers, um, which is, you know, partly why consumers have such an overwhelmingly favorable um, impression of Amazon. Yeah, you've you've written about accusations that Amazon engages in self-dealing, which is collecting data on companies that use its products and then creating businesses that directly compete with them. Is that legal? Like, is that, you know, because I can imagine, like, pushback sort of being like, well, yeah, they're smart, you know, they are figuring this stuff out and they're doing, you know, and they're doing it better than anyone. Why should they be punished for that? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think in previous eras of how we did antitrust, it would have been illegal um, because antitrust is supposed to care about the integrity of the competitive process. And so I think 
I think the key issue here is that you have a whole independent set of um, companies that are in, undertaking the initial risk of bringing a product to market. Um, so, you know, say there's this really nifty kind of vacuum cleaner that one seller in Minnesota realizes is really cool and you kind of start selling it on Amazon and it starts doing really well. Um, the fact that Amazon's been able to swoop in and steal that guy's insight about this vacuum cleaner and start producing itself or start going, to do, going directly to the manufacturer and then either delisting that, that initial seller or kind of docking where he shows up on the search result um, such that Amazon is now reaping, I think that creates a really unhealthy dynamic where the people who are undertaking the initial risk of bringing a product to market are not able to reap the reward because Amazon's able to kind of swoop in and steal that insight. Mm-hmm. In your op-ed, you talk about a competition policy fit for the digital age. What does that look like to you? I think it looks like a few things, one of which is a greater recognition of the way in which concentration over data can really tip a market in your favor. Um, I think it would also require acknowledging that the kind of information stealing that Amazon and Google and Facebook are able to do when it comes to their rivals, that that should be considered anti-competitive. There's a great example with Facebook, where a few years ago, Facebook acquired this company called Anavo. um, That's a VPN server, and it's supposed to give Facebook users more privacy. But by acquiring this company, what Facebook was also able to do is to track in very close detail what rival applications are diverting attention from Facebook. So it's able to use that information to know before anybody else which other apps are starting to do well, starting to become very popular. And then it then uses that information to either roll out a replica good and kind of squash this nascent rival um, sure. in the bud, or it's able to kind of go out, make a, you know, an acquisition offer and bring that technology in-house. Um, and so you really see how you know, there's a big information asymmetry between Facebook, Google, Amazon, and the rest of kind of the business community. Um, and I think they're able to use that information advantage in ways that you know, favor them um, at the expense of open competitive markets that are conducive to entrepreneurship, that are conducive to innovation. So I think an antitrust approach that really, really understood the implications of having control over data and the competitive edge that data can give you, I think that Mm -hmm. would be important. I think the other thing would just be to move away from this very price-centric analysis of harm, because I think there are all sorts of ways in which a company can undermine competition, can undermine the competitive process in ways that don't immediately register as higher prices for consumers. I think this is also an important issue because there's a way in which we've lost the notion of a, of a stable price online, right? So, so if you go on yeah, Amazon, Amazon changes time. prices millions of times a day, right? Millions of times a day, mm-hmm. same with Uber. Um, and what these companies can do is they can use that destabilization of prices to start ushering in price discrimination. So it's possible that you and I uh, would pay a different price for the same shoes on Amazon just by virtue of the fact that Amazon knows that I'm a more price-sensitive customer than you are. And so this yep. kind of price discrimination that these companies can engage in, I think, also means that you know, asking, oh, are consumers paying higher prices is really just an anachronistic question because the entire concept of a price has changed. Um, you know, Uber has acknowledged on the record that it actually engages in price discrimination based on you know, what it thinks people's willingness to pay is. So this is not a hypothetical. Um, this is something that companies are already engaging in. I get that we're talking about big concepts here. Something as complex as U.S. antitrust law doesn't really feel like something that we as individuals can affect. 
But let's say the government isn't going to regulate Amazon like a monopoly or do anything to keep them in check. Shouldn't we at least ask ourselves what we're enabling by spending our money there? We'll get to that after the break. Stay tuned. We're back. And as I mentioned before the break, we're pivoting from looking at the system to the people who make that system work. So we're talking to Jessica Bruder, the writer who told us about the hellish environment of Amazon warehouses at the top of the show. Jessica was doing a bunch of reading about Amazon a few years back, including an article by reporter Mac McClellan for Mother Jones. There was one, one or two paragraphs in that story where somebody briefly spoke with her and said, oh, yeah, I live in, our, in an RV and I, I do this job because I can't afford to retire. And there's a whole program for people like us. And at that moment, the story kind of came to a screeching halt for me. I mean, eventually I read the rest of it. It was fantastic. But uh, I got super hung up on that moment and it kind of haunted me in a big way. I'd done a lot of writing about subcultures and just got like, who are these people who are traveling the country and doing jobs like this? And Amazon's hiring them or other people hiring them. Jessica's haunting has resulted in her book, Nomadland, which chronicles the lives of a team of employees Amazon calls Camper Force. Basically, what Camper Force is, is a program that brings in full-time RVers and some van dwellers. And gosh, I know somebody who was next to a guy who was living in a tent through the winter doing this program. So all sorts of... Uh, full-time mobile people. And uh, the program literally started months after the housing crash in 2008, which may well be a coincidence. But Amazon's older business model was to have warehouses in super far-flung locations. It wasn't like right now when the focus is on last-mile delivery and they, they want to be everywhere. You know, you could open the door to your closet and realize they've put like a small distribution center in there when you were sleeping. We don't really know. Um, but so basically to avoid taxes, there's this whole thing called a tax nexus where they could locate in a state where they didn't have that many customers and then of basically reduce their tax burden by doing that because the taxes would hit most on the people they were selling to in the same state. So cool. Uh, it's crazy. So it's it's changed a bit. The model has changed, but some of these warehouses remain and they could not get enough people to work uh, during what they call peak, which is the months leading up to the consumer bonanza known as Christmas. And um, as a result of that, they were just always scrambling and temp agencies were trying to come up with new things. And, you know, in 2008, they ended up hiring a bunch of our viewers. And uh, it didn't have a name yet, that program, but that was the prototype for Camper Force, which grew into this thing where, gosh, they go all over the country recruiting people. And this just happens at a few of their warehouses. But what Amazon does is they set people up with local RV parks and they pay the camping expenses, quote unquote camping. And uh, then people come in and do the seasonal work. But by and large... It is an older population. Uh, in their recruiting materials, Amazon likes to refer to them as a mature population mm -hmm. uh, and talk about why that means they've got a great work ethic. They talk about how they might have the camper effect on, you know, disaffected millennials in the warehouse. I've heard that spoken about by recruiters, too. Just the idea that they bring a can-do attitude. Right. They do these online uh, jobinars, and we actually excerpted some of the audio for the short documentary, and you can just... You know, it's very chirpy saying, you know, you come in here and you've got a smile on your face. And I mean, 
I know people in their 70s who've walked 15 miles a day on this job. It's not uh, it, it's not an easy gig. You're walking on cement floors. Uh, I know a lot of people who got repetitive stress injuries from wielding uh, these barcode scanners. Mm-hmm. Trigger essentially, finger. Yeah. It's like your digital test master, too. It, you know, it tells you what all your jobs are. Uh, I went... Uh, I spent some time on Camper Force briefly myself, and my uh, scanner gun kind of went haywire and was actually trying to tell me to drive a forklift. It's really good for everyone that didn't happen because <laughs> I don't know how to drive a forklift. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's a really tough job, and a lot of the people doing it are older. Um, mm-hmm. So, again, we're talking about minds exploding. That was something else that made my mind explode again. Yeah. So can you talk about the recruitment um, and how it's, like, very chipper? It is very chipper. I mean, they used to send out these uh, newsletters, and one of my favorite headlines was like, oh, it said, Camper Force, the value of friendship. What? Which sounds like, um, it's, <laughs> it sounds like the title of a My Little Pony movie. Yeah, what? Or something. Yeah, what? I know. That was, that was my reaction. Um, so, no, they talk a lot about camaraderie and bonding, and you see that in a lot of these jobs for um, our viewers who are traveling. They call it work camping with a K. And uh, I mean, I remember going to an RV show where Amazon was recruiting the sugar beet harvest. That's another hard gig. They had posters up that said something like come for the unbeatable experience. Now, I like a pun as much as the next writer, but not when it's to exploit somebody. And and so, okay, so they're mostly older and are Work campers and camper forests also mostly white? Yeah, it's pretty white. So why? It's pretty white. Why? Well, I asked a lot of people that. and uh, It's funny because there were a lot of people who started saying, why are we so white? Mm-hmm. Like if you go on, Camper Force has a Facebook page. And if you look for like group photos of Camper Force, mm-hmm. it's, it's like you see a picture. There's a lot of gray hair. There's a lot of white faces and occasionally like one person of color. So I started talking to people and saying, what's, well, what's up with this? And... There are a whole bunch of factors that seem to be going into it. Uh, One of them is that RVing, by and large, has been marketed to white people for a super long time. It just, for whatever reason, seems to have become, and I don't know if it's part of the fact that this was advertised to white people heavily, like a lot of outdoor things get kind of disproportionately marketed to white people as a recreational pastime. And, you know, if you look at that right now, a lot of people who are in pretty dire financial straits we're in a country where the attitude is still pull yourself up by your bootstraps, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's worth noting that that phrase was actually initially coined to talk about a structural impossibility because you literally cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh, good. Uh, but it's it's come to mean something, well, which is, you know, a lot more self-blamey, but um, equally absurd. Today And I just feel like there's so much corrosive shame around poverty. People don't want to talk about it because people feel like it's their fault. And they've been culturally conditioned to believe that it's their fault. So you have something like RVing, where for a long time, it's been this pastime, which has been predominantly white, Mm -hmm. historically, for whatever reason. And for people who can't afford traditional housing anymore, who are on extremely limited incomes, uh, that's a culture you can blend into. And it's not a shameful thing. The other reason that strikes me is, so I finished writing my book before the Trumpocalypse took hold. And if you think about what was in the papers then and continues to be a huge problem is just cops shooting unarmed 
African-American males and people in cars. Like it's a different experience, particularly if you're alone on the road to be a person of color. Yeah. So in my mind, I I think the reason it was predominantly white is just kind of a stew of everything we just talked about. That makes sense. So, okay. Is Amazon helping people who otherwise wouldn't be able to make ends meet or is it exploiting a broken system for its own cheap labor benefits or is it both? Again, it really depends on your politics. So, for example, in a situation like this, yeah, they're not doing anything illegal. But yes, they are definitely the beneficiary of a very broken system, a kind of a system where it's kind of like, well, let them eat iPhones, right? I mean, um, they are, this is a very pliable, very very user-friendly workforce. They're not going to ask for much in terms of benefits. They disappear when you don't need them anymore. And, you know, I believe people deserve more than that. So I do think, you know, that it's very advantageous to Amazon to hire them, and they do, and they reap the benefits of that without, you know, we don't demand very much in return for these people. But I do see it as a, you know, do you hate the player or do you hate the game? Like, I find their behavior pretty predatory and odious and monopolistic, but we're not enforcing monopoly law in this country anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so forget about that. But by the same time, uh, it's a much bigger thing. I mean, Amazon, I've said this before, they're kind of the perfectly evolved predator for the ecosystem we've all had a hand in building. Like, yeah. we built the jungle and they're the alpha, you know, creature. Like, they've adapted the fastest, the best. Is it, So Amazon's the largest employer of this group of workers? Um, you know, there are, they don't give out numbers. I, I definitely say they're the most aggressive. Mm. <laughs> There's, they go all over the place. Um, but... You know, the numbers have fluctuated. So in 2014, when I asked them how many uh, people, I just walked up to the recruiting table and they said the headcount then was around 2,000, but I don't have any numbers since Mm -hmm. then. So, you know, we're not talking about great, great, huge globs of like, you know, everybody's grandmother and grandfather is going to be doing this in five years. This is kind of more of an indicator thing. Yeah. So it's weird. Like the problems are so much bigger, but this is just kind of one manifestation um, of a quote-unquote solution that people have found to essentially reconstitute some sort of mobile middle class and have some degree of autonomy. We could make the argument that Amazon's exploiting our broken system, but at least they're creating jobs in underprivileged communities. What's so bad about that? Well, according to reporter Alana Samuels, not all those jobs are good jobs. She wrote a piece for The Atlantic about an Amazon warehouse that opened in San Bernardino, California, a city struggling with poverty and high unemployment rates. Samuels reports that the percentage of people living in poverty has actually increased in the years since Amazon opened for business in San Bernardino. The company did bring jobs to a community ravaged by unemployment, but the jobs it brought don't pay well enough to help the community move out of poverty. All of this raises questions about another one of Amazon's schemes to be America's employment saviors. You may recall the effervescent coverage of Amazon's recent plan to build a second headquarters. It's a $5 billion project that creates 50,000 jobs. There are 238 cities that are vying for this. Boston, Chicago, Columbus, Dallas. It's a big fight still here. It's a big fight. Amazon is running a reality show. They've got the (laughs) mayors of every city coming to them. They've asked for all kinds of data. This is kind of an amazing process to watch. So what's so bad about a $5 billion construction project that's going to create 50,000 new jobs? For one thing... Jobs at Amazon HQ are different than the warehouse jobs we were just talking about. These are high-paying tech industry jobs, the kind that can lead to massive spikes in housing prices. Seattle, which is home to Amazon's first headquarters, declared a state of emergency in 2015 because of the outbreak of homelessness. Part of the cause? 
Rents have increased 65% since 2009 in King County, where Seattle is. So what is it about American culture that enables people like Jeff Bezos to create companies like Amazon without much apparent resistance or concern? We'll try to figure that out after the break. We're back, and it's time to talk about Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon, and the guy pulling the strings, which, come to think of it, I'm actually not sure if I mean purse or puppet. Anyway, Bezos is literally the richest guy on the planet, so why don't we hate him? Why do we keep throwing our money at him? For an answer, I turn to Nicole Ashoff, the author of The New Profits of Capital, which explores the disparity between the rosy reputations of people like Bill Gates and Sheryl Sandberg and the less friendly, more cutthroat corporate policies they've deployed to achieve those reputations. Nicole says Jeff Bezos is tough to figure out, to say the least. Bezos is a little bit different. I mean, he's a sort of classic entrepreneur in the way that we idolize entrepreneurs throughout American history. And he actually, compared to the other kind of, you know, storytellers, some, like someone like Zuckerberg, he actually has a much kind of bigger vision about how he wants to change society. But he presents his vision in a, in a very sort of simple way, which is that he wants to make life for consumers better, basically. So mm-hmm. he's not really saying, like, let me fix some of the problems that we care about as a society. But he does actually have this kind of huge vision for reorganizing society. Yeah. So what are some, who, the, the other central figures that you talk about uh, that are trying to, like, shape our modern understanding of the capitalist economic system? You talk about Sheryl Sandberg and, and like you said, Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, Oprah Winfrey, John Mackey, who's the CEO of Whole Foods. Um, and they all kind of enjoy this really positive reputation in pop culture. Uh, does does Jeff uh, Bezos have like the same type of thing or how do people I mean, because these are people that people seem to to really talk about in like, oh, I guess, aspirational ways? This is the case increasingly with a lot of Silicon Valley figures. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is a perfect example. It's like one week people will spend the week hating on, you know, this person. And the same goes with with Bezos, you know, talking about, I don't know if you remember, but a little, a couple, maybe it was like a year or so back, there was, you know, a big splashy piece in the New York Times talking about how everybody just cries all the time at Amazon and it's a terrible place to work. You know, Mm -hmm. but then we'll turn around. We have a very short memory. We'll turn around and get super excited about, you know, what new sort of content Amazon is creating. Uh, And then, you know, in the next breath, we'll turn around and say, oh, Amazon is raising its prime membership cost because they can and we're all hooked into their giant octopus and we should be freaking out. Yeah. I mean, it's it's seems like a shared characteristic of the people that you profile in the book is that, um you know, in addition to making them extremely rich, capitalism is used to build like a better future, as you you were talking about before, like this conscious capitalism. Um, does Bezos have a similar vision or like what is conscious capitalism? Bezos definitely doesn't have a vision of conscious capitalism. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I think about Bezos, I don't know. I, I like um, like sci-fi movies and yeah. stories and novels. He's like, I don't know if you saw the new Blade Runner, but whenever we like see these dystopian futures, there's always like one evil corporation that has taken over every single part of our lives and, and ruined everything. That's kind of how I 
envision Amazon much more than like, you know, a kind of company that prides itself on like being one with the earth, whether it actually does that or not. You know, like Whole Foods, at least they're sort of company ideology, right? The story they tell about themselves was very much about not really worrying about, you know, reaching sort of into every sphere of life, but much more kind of valuing all stakeholders. Amazon mm-hmm. definitely doesn't pretend to be that kind of company. <laughs> what, okay, why why not? What are they doing? Well, I don't know where. I heard this a while ago, but so, it was this great quote. I don't know if Bezos maybe said it about himself, uh, but just this idea that he would like to kind of like charge a rent on sort of every economic activity in our lives and, you know, sort of be at the center of, you know, kind of all of the, you know, things that we do in our life, right? Like they could Mm -hmm. actually kind of like create this company that's at the center of like all the kinds of things that we need to do in our life, which is really um, scary. And, um, you know, but people seem to be on board with that. Like Mm -hmm. people are buying Alexas and Echoes and putting them in their house and I can't ordering believe food on demand. <laughs> I can't I the food thing, whatever. But I can't. Yeah. I can't. Why are you putting this in your house? I feel like I, I sound know. like I a, mean, a fuddy duddy when I say that. But like, what? What? <laughs> well, I, you know, actually, it is a really deep question, and it's something I've thought about a lot because I know people who have these in their house, and they're not blind like they know that this device in their house is listening to everything that's being said all of the time and some of these devices actually have a camera that is you know designed to put right next to your bed (laughs) or you know that's Mm -hmm. always also always on or one that you put in your closet to like help you pick out your outfits which Mm -hmm. to me just seems completely insane but I think it's it's kind of part of our changing you know collective mindset about surveillance and consumption and just kind of the role of tech in our lives. It's really changed a lot in the past 10 years. I think if you had suggested this product to someone, something like Alexa 10 years ago, they would have been like, are you nuts? No, I don't want that in my house. But now, you know, I think they've sold like 40 million of these devices or something like that. This doesn't make any sense. I mean, I I don't know. I guess it does make sense. But like, it just seems like an obvious, like, gotcha, like, we had you put it in your own house. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, it, it, personally, it kind of blows my mind. I, I personally would never put one in my house. Mm-hmm. But I talk to people about it, and I try not to be, like, super judgmental. I probably fail. Uh, but they, you know, the people I talk to about it are just basically like, well, you know, I don't care if they listen to me because it makes my life better. Like, I get something for it. Uh-huh. So, I don't know. I don't know how you argue with that. Yeah. Anyway, uh <laughs> so your uh your book has a chapter about Whole Foods before it was a wholly owned subsidi- subsidiary of Amazon. And one of the points you make make which I ironically turns out to be prophetic, uh is that the the conscious capitalism that uh Whole Foods CEO John Mackey preaches is kind of doomed to become predatory capitalism because that's ultimately the only way that that it can survive. So, like, can you can you explain what ca- conscious is? Ver- I mean, you said that, but versus predatory capitalism, and also, like, 
you said that they don't have any interest in that, but Amazon is creating a healthcare company and having a contest to see what city's going to get their warehouse next. Like, isn't that them playing like the consciousness game? Uh, I wouldn't think about it that way. So the point I was trying to make um, when I was telling this kind of story about Whole Foods was that here's an example of a company where the head of the company, you know, is not um, a terrible guy. And I think he does, John Mackey, who's, uh, you know, as you said, Whole Foods has been bought by Amazon. But before it was bought by Amazon, you know, it existed for quite some time as an independent company who really did, you know, whether it succeeded at this or not, really did kind of preach a model of, you know, a kind of old-fashioned company where all of the stakeholders, whether it's the workers or the suppliers or the environment, are valued and they have a kind of role in, you know, making this sort of slow, kind of slow-growing, kind of competitive, but still caring about the customer and making a good product um, company, right? And And the idea was that if we don't just care about, you know, the demands of our shareholders, we'll be able to actually, you know, make a company that's, you know, in in balance and, and can kind of help the world through its model. And if all the companies operated this way, well, then we could solve these sort of more thorny problems of, you know, climate change and resource, depri- you know, depletion, etc. That's 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 conscious capitalism. So my argument in the book is basically this is not possible within capitalism. You can't have these kind of warm, fuzzy companies because, one of the sort of fundamental dynamics of capitalism is competition. And this is precisely what happened. A bunch of bigger supermarket chains like Walmart, Target, Kroger saw that there was a huge demand for, you know, organic food. And they were like, well, we can do this a whole lot cheaper than you can based on our, you know, supply chains and economies of scale. And we're going to. And they did. And Whole Foods found itself out of step you know, with families whose wages have been stagnating, households who have tight budgets, and they're going to buy their stuff cheaper if they can get it, you know, because other companies start to to offer the product. So Whole Foods finds itself in, you know, and this is a classic sort of scenario. It happens over and over again because that's the way capitalism works. So what, when did this, um, like, storyline of the entrepreneurial hero become become prevalent? Like when I think was it's, this kind yeah. of always I done with rich people? Yeah, yeah, always. I mean, and and you know, you have these sort of classic, uh, you know, biopic pieces and books. I mean, there's so many books written about all of. There's like several written b- books just written about like Bezos. I mean, this is part of our culture in American society to really kind of elevate these entrepreneurs as like wizards or geniuses. Um, yeah, so I think that's always been there. And I yeah. mean, Bezos didn't didn't take over Whole Foods, um, I don't think, for the kind of conscious capitalist model. Um, I think it was really a much more sort of nuts and bolts, like look at all the real estate that Whole Foods has in these very wealthy areas. And all of these people who shop at Whole Foods are also prime members. So mm-hmm. let's actually sort of link these up together for my big octopus kind of corporate model <laughs> is is there i mean so it's it's like uh like you said it's storytelling right i mean either they tell the yeah. story about themselves or they have it tell, told about them and it's like this i this sort of almost like greek gods thing with with rich people right like is there something unique yeah. about these people today or is it the same kind of storytelling 
No, and I think you make a really good point. It's either they're telling the story or someone is telling the story about them. And and remarkably, the the two kind of, it doesn't matter who's doing the telling, the story is always kind of the same. And I think it's always been this case. I've recently been reading more about the Gilded Age for this book that I'm writing. And if you look back at the way, you know, newspapers and journalists describe the kind of titans of the late 19th century, you know, people Mm -hmm. like Vanderbilt and J.P. Morgan, it's really similar. It's like, you know, half hating and half loving, right? It's like we begrudge these people for the sort of, you know, ruthless, you know, dishonest behavior they engage in, but at the same time, we really put them up on a pedestal as sort of the, you know, exemplars of the American dream. You know, these people who, you know, built themselves up and built this empire because secretly part of the American dream is like we always want to leave that little opening just for ourselves, like just in case we make it, you know, just in case we can become really rich, which of course doesn't happen, but that's kind of part of the 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 framework, right? The story. It is interesting that there's like this um, you know, this cool factor, I guess, to these kind of like w- wealthy monopoly people, which I guess is why you well, call them prophets. Yeah, I mean, so part of it is that, you know, if we look at like the kind of couple decades after World War II, um, as a society, right, we were thinking really big, like we were we had big plans for the future, right? We were going to have like flying cars and, and, you know, we were going to live in the sky and have like hoverboards and You know, if you look at, like, ideas around, like, Star Trek, right, it's like we had big plans for developing as a society. And that was something that people found really uplifting, right? It's like we are moving forward, right? There's a sort of progressive vision and this, like, kind of stage theory, which, of course, we can debunk that now. But still, like, the impact on morale was, like, tangible, right? People were thinking about a big picture kind of world and and, Mm -hmm. and progress, and I think that was really lost in the in the 80s and 90s, right? And instead, and you know, during those decades, what we were most concerned with was talking about like shareholder returns and like mm-hmm. quarterly returns and you know, obsessed with just like making a profit. So I think one of the really compelling things about people like Bezos and Elon Musk is that they will openly say, I don't really care how much, you know, profit I'm making right now. I have a big picture plan of how to grow and become this big, amazing company. And the shareholders can either get on board or get lost. Like, I don't care. And this is actually something that people find really appealing because it kind of harkens back to sort of old notions, again, of the entrepreneur, right? Someone who's not worried about sort of the bottom line at every moment, but has like a big picture vision. So folks, what do we do? There are plenty of great things that might not exist without Amazon and Jeff Bezos. The Washington Post has done some of the most effective reporting on the Trump administration. Amazon Prime makes some really important, really good shows. And there's nothing inherently wrong with fast, efficient delivery and low prices. But there's lots of questions I can't stop asking myself. What is the price of the convenience we get from Amazon? How am I enabling the horrifying working conditions of Amazon employees by buying from an ecosystem that functions because these terrible policies keep business costs low? I realize that in the mind of antitrust law, I'm winning because Amazon's low prices and efficiency are supposedly pro-consumer. 
But if shopping from Amazon is gradually eroding healthy competition and ceding more and more power to a single-minded corporation without much regard for the well-being of the world beyond its bottom line, aren't I actually losing? Aren't we all kind of losing? For the record, we reached out to Amazon to ask them all of these questions, and they did not respond. Why would they? (laughs) So I guess the last question is, sure, Amazon's incredibly convenient, but how much do I really need it? Let's look at the list of things that I bought from Amazon Prime again. So yeah, I could have obviously gone to an art store and gotten the easel. I could have gotten the razor blades at the grocery store. I could have gotten the printer ink at Staples. I could have bought the pods at like Target. You know, like I could have... There's a couple books on here. I could have definitely gotten from like Skylight Books. Um, So yeah, I'm a monster. (laughs) Um, I'm a bad person. Okay. So is it possible to actually cut the cord? It turns out Jessica Bruder's one step ahead of me. I've got to say, not using Amazon, I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't quit sooner because it's really easy. (laughs) We just get so... It's really, really funny. Like, I, I, something else I'm writing about lately is uh, labor issues involving cabs and stuff. And it's like suddenly people can't imagine New York without Uber. But we lived without Uber for a really long time and we all got where we needed to go. And it, the things that are really just little flickers of convenience that might save us 50 cents or two minutes, like we kind of don't really need them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I I kind of said, you know, if I can't spend 50 cents more to live in accordance with my beliefs a little bit better, well, that's kind of sad. I just want to say, after we were researching this episode, I had to buy a book and I did buy it directly from the publisher's website. So I'm basically a hero. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. And also tell your friends who thought it was real cute and fun when Preet Bharara suggested Jeff Bezos should buy Twitter. Oh, God. Could it be any worse than Twitter already is? We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell, Cameron Drews, and Sam Dingman. And we're edited by Chiquita Pascal. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. See you next week.